Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman, director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. I'm here today with Chris Beam, the managing director. And uh, we are very lucky today on Democracy Works to have as our guest Daniel Ziblatt, author of the best-selling book, uh, How Democracies Die. Yeah, in, in the biz, it's called a good get. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, there's a lot to chew on in this book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a really impressive book. Yeah, so where do we start? Well, you know, I mean, in... I can see this going two ways. The one thing is that, you know, this book is is one example of a number of books that are really um, responding to what is really a worldwide phenomenon about, you know, um, people thinking that democracy is more under threat, more questionable as a way of organizing social life together than it has been in decades. Right. I mean, the public really seems to have sort of woken up in uh, in really just over the past year, mm-hmm. I think, to what it means to be a democracy and how how democracies uh, persevere or even what, what I think what I see as really a big takeaway from this book, the idea that democracies and something more authoritarian are not really dichotomies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get from one to the other. And, and and that is, I think, the real contribution of uh, Daniel and, and Stephen Lewitsky, who's right, the, his co-author. The co-author. Uh, Daniel studies Europe and uh, Stephen studies Latin America. And so they have a, uh, a studied background in terms of how it is that uh, democracies trans, uh, transcend and diminish into authoritarianism. And then they say, well, let's just look at this in terms of what's happening right now in the U.S. Yeah, this idea that democracy can incrementally kind of be eaten away. uh, And we're seeing lots of books about this now coming from the right and the left from Mm -hmm. from all directions interested in this interested in this idea. And and they're not only looking to uh, to Europe and Latin America. They're also looking to America's own past. And, Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting what they're doing there, because I. I think Americans tend to think in terms of this country's constant growth towards becoming a more complete democracy. Yeah, this expanding notion of what it means to say all men are created equal. Yeah, exactly right. And and what I think is so interesting about this moment right now and, and why their book has been as successful as it has, uh, beyond the fact that it's just beautifully researched and written, is that Americans are starting to think about this. Well, it, I think you're right. There is, there is this notion— among you know, science, political scientists, among regular citizens, among everyone, that um, well, you know, we've been doing this for well over two hundred years. We got it down. We know what we're doing, and we can assume that things are going to continue much the way they have. One of the really nice contributions this book makes is that they offer uh, sort of straightforward indicators to understand. For people to to understand that you may have just elected an authoritarian, right? Yeah. What is important? What do we and, need to pay and what to? do you need to um, react the most strongly against? Right? right. It's not just you know, um, is it is it is it a, um, a rude tweet, or is there or is there something else that um, really merits your concern and your uh, considered response? And that is true for just about every step. 
that uh, the book identifies, um, in every case, um, Donald Trump has said things that um, move in the authoritarian direction, but so far, um, there hasn't been any real actions that um, that reflect that same kind of attitude. Right. Should we should we all kind of sit back and enjoy the show, and say it's really not that big a deal so right. long as things are continuing to operate pretty much according to law, or is there really reason for concern in some of what's being said? And and this is this is probably a good spot on which to you know turn it over because. Um, how democracies die spends at least as much time, if not more, on norms, on norms of right. behavior, on on the idea that um, it doesn't just matter what you do, but how you do it and what your words convey. And uh, and so um, in that sense and it, it directly that um, issue, um, how democracies die um, reflects a very concerned and uh, trepidatious tone about what's going on in America right now. Well, let's uh, bring in Jenna and Daniel. Sounds good. Daniel, thank you so much for joining yes. us today on, on Democracy Works. Yeah, thank you. So uh, your book, How Democracies Die, uh, which you um, co-author with your Harvard colleague, Stephen Levitsky, um, I'm curious if you could start off um, telling us about what the impetus was for, for you and Stephen to write this book. Yeah, well, Steve and I, we teach together. We've taught lots of courses together, graduate and undergraduate courses on d democracies and crisis and de democratic breakdown and democratization around the world. I work on Latin, on Europe, and he works on Latin America. So we haven't primarily focused on the United States in our work. But during the course of the 2015-16 campaign season, um, really the Republican uh, nomination process, we you know kept running into each other and talking about the tenor of the political rhetoric um, and commenting how similar this was and how much it reminded us of politics and c the countries we had, we study. Um, and so it was really that that made us begin to think that there's something kind of unusual going on. And, it, and, and I, think, I think the real turning point came, I think it was in October 2016 at one of the debates when candidate Trump, when, when asked at one of the debates, would he accept the results of the election if he lost? And he said, well, you know, I'm not so sure. I'll keep you in suspense. And it was really that moment where we realized this is not accepting the basic rules of the democratic game is something that non-Democrats do and that we had seen elsewhere, we'd never seen in the United States. And so we realized that we had something to say on this drawing on lessons from other parts of the world. And so um, where where does Donald Trump fit into to all of this? Is he, um, you know, did did this this process of, of democratic erosion that you describe in the book, did it start before Trump or was he kind of a, a symptom of it? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, and it's a great question because in many ways I think we, there's a tendency to focus on Donald Trump. I mean, the spectacle of Trump and the latest, you know, offensive tweet or whatever, whatever people respond to. But, you know, really one of the points of our book is to say that these dynamics long preceded uh, President Trump, that there's been a long-run process of uh, polarization in American politics. Really, we argue, driven initially primarily by the radicalization of the Republican Party, uh, in which uh, 
there's kind of growing polarization where, where people on opposite side of the partisan divide have begun to fear each other in ways that, again, reminds us of other countries. But this preceded Donald Trump, and it'll outlast Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump is in office till 2020 or leaves office sooner, uh, you know, the, the implication of our book is really that these dynamics will still be there. And so it's those underlying problems that you know, we could talk a lot more about that I, we think are really the thing that concern us. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned um, political uh, parties. And so what what role do you see um, parties playing in this this uh, process of, of, of democratic decline? I know you talk in the book about parties, um, their their role as, as gatekeepers and how they might have stepped away from that in, in more recent years. Yeah, so parties are really at the center of the story for us. One of the uh, lessons from the book is that throughout American history, there's been around at least the 20th century, you know, period for which we have opinion poll data, there's been a, around 30% of the American electorate that supports kind of demagogic type of politicians. So, you know, whether that's pol- voters who supported Henry Ford, who had considered running for president in the 20s, or Huey Long, or Joe McCarthy, or George Wallace, there's been a, there's a kind of continuous strand of voters that uh, have have basically had ambivalent views or not really strong commitments, I would argue, we argue in the book, to democratic norms. So what's changed is not that voters have changed. What's changed is that the role of parties has changed. And so uh, political parties in particular, you know, the, before the 1970s, uh, the way that parties selected candidates for the presidency was often in what critics at the time rightly called smoke-filled back rooms where party leaders got together. And... Um, you know, what's changed since then is the introduction of primaries, which is generally a good thing. I mean, this has made the selection of candidates much more democratic. But the downside of this is that it's made it much easier for a demagogic politician to come along and to gain the nomination of a party. All right. And so what what's the, the solution to that? How how do you kind of prevent these the, the, the same thing from happening again or from these yeah. you know, demagogues from, from winning yeah. elections? So, right. So, I mean, it's, it's tricky. We don't advocate going back to the days of the smoke-filled room. Um, that's certainly not the case. But there are kind of reforms around the edges that could make a difference. And in many ways, I think our presidential selection system is broken. And it's we've sort of known that for a long time, but it's only now – it's been right in front of us, but it's only now become apparent in the, after the 2016 election. And so one, one kind of thing that – makes a difference and has made a difference, it would make a difference, is the existence of superdelegates. I mean, so, so the Democratic Party has superdelegates where elected officials have a uh, an extra say in the selection of presidential uh, uh, candidates. So in addition to voters, uh, Democratic Party voters, the superdelegates at conventions have a say. Um, and a lot of people are critical of this and think that we should get rid of this in the Democratic Party. But what's interesting is the Republican Party did, does not have superdelegates. This is a reform introduced in the early 1980s. You know, had the Republican Party had superdelegates, one wonders, you know, what would have the results look like? Would have would have Donald Trump actually won uh, the nomination? What if he run and what if he won? So that, that's one kind of reform. Yeah, it seems like maybe striking some type of compromise compromise between the smoke filled back room and a more of a of a popularity contest right, type of thing. Exactly. Right. Um, so something else that we've been talking a lot here about at the the McCourtney Institute is um, the kind of constant assault from Washington on on the free press. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what role you see that the kind of assault on the press um, playing from from where you sit? Yeah. So one of the one of our chapters in our book, we lay out strategies that um, authoritarian inclined politicians have used around the world. Um, and this is, again, drawing on lessons from other countries. And, and once in office, 
um, elected authoritarians often they, we kind of have a sports metaphor, and they we say they go they they try to capture the referees of the political system, so the court system, the you know neutral arbiters of rule and law. We say that they um, try to sideline uh, the opposition. Um, and we also say that one of the things they do is they go after the free press. I mean, this is a common thing. And it's often through very subtle means. It's not the shutting down of newspapers and media stations. So if one looks at what's happened in Turkey and what's happened in uh, Hungary, I mean, although there's been some of that kind of more extreme measures, one thing that has happened in a, in a place like Hungary is that there's been a kind of uh, process of um, of licensing of media, a changing of libel laws um, that that make it easier to sue uh, press uh, journalists. Um, and there's been a way in which the, the kind of control of the media has been politicized and so that the, there's a kind of bias in the direction of the incumbents, all with the, all intended to kind of bolster up the incumbent. And in many instances, what happens is that the, the critical press is allowed to continue to exist. But what one sees the, the kind of continued existence of a critical press is treated as part of the democratic opposition, to, and so becomes part of the problem of pol uh, polarization. And so, in many ways, you know, the the press becomes part of, um, you know, part of the, the the game of politics, where each side is kind of viewing each other as enemy. And there's been increasingly critical views, uh, more and more widespread views, you know, saying that the press is, you know, out to get Donald Trump, or it's giving not giving President Trump a fair. Uh, fair shake. And so I think one of it's hard to imagine. And similarly, you know, I mean, sort of along the same lines, actually, voters, Republican voters are increasingly critical and skeptical of the idea that elections are actually fair and free. So if you think that these two pillars of democracy, a free press and free elections are regarded as significant portions by significant portions of the population uh, as as being not legitimate, it's hard to imagine sustaining a, a viable democracy in the face of that. So that's so it's very, very worrying. One of the things that you hear um, kind of, kind of a, a counter argument to all of this mm. is that Trump is is all bluster, but no right. no action behind that, and you know people on the left are kind of wringing their hands over nothing. Uh, so what what would you say to yeah, that? Yeah, no, that's it's a good point. I mean, so so we have this in in our in our book, we have this what we call an authoritarian litmus test, which are really a set of indicators attacking the media, questioning the legitimacy of elections. Uh, threatening violence or condoning violence, and these are all things that that candidate Trump rhetor rhetorically embraced before the election, and so people have said, well, you know, he hasn't done much in office. I mean, this has all been talked before the election in office. He's been largely constrained, and whether one thinks that that constraint is self-imposed or by, you know, comes through our system of checks and balances, one can say, well, you know, what really do we have to worry about? And I guess there, there, I have sort of two responses to this. I think the words matter, um, and words matter for two reasons. Number one, uh, when President Trump attacks the media and says it's the enemy of the people, when he falsely says that there's rampant election fraud, that this shapes public opinion. The second way that words matter, though, is that they generate uh, fear on the side of the Democratic opposition, the Democratic Party opposition. And this contributes to polarization. And so when, when and so there's great in increasing temptation for for people on the Democratic side of the aisle to use increasingly extreme measures if they feel that they are under assault. This can kind of give rise to a spiraling effect, a tit-for-tat effect, where one has both sides regarding each other in increasingly you know, frightful terms, and there's kind of fear and loathing across the political aisle. So, this, so I think the president has a particular responsibility to hold the line um, and because people look to the president and believe the president. Uh, both his allies and his opponents, and so in this sense, language language matters. So, so I think so. Even if 
there was no actual institutional damage done, immediate you know action done. I think words matter very for very very serious in very serious way. So one one of the things that 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 struck me in the book was you you talked about I think it was was Venezuela but but pl- uh, please correct me if I'm wrong that there there was a a poll done you know after the after its democracy had had gone away and some like astonishing number of of people there still thought they were actually living in in a democracy right. so that's right yeah it can, was Venezuela that's yeah. right yeah it's 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 a frightening thing I mean I think that's one of you know so one of the you know the title of our book again is how democracies die and and you know we when people often ask us well how do democracies die and you know we say really they they die in two different ways I mean during the Cold War the primary way that democracies died was through these very vivid moments singular moments of of authority of authoritarian coups or military coups I mean three quarters of democratic breakdowns happened this way during the Cold War since the collapse of communism though the given the existence of elections around the world and the kind of general, you know, embrace of democracy around the world after the collapse of communism, the way that de- democracies collapse now is through elections, and so this often happens in this much more incremental way, and so it's um, it's very frightening. I mean, actually, I'm kind of reminded here of uh, a quote from Ernest Hemingway in *The Sun Also Rises*. A character in *The in Sun Also Rises* was asked, *The Sun Also Rises* was asked, you know, so you went bankrupt. How did you go bankrupt? He said, um, "I went bankrupt in in two ways." Uh, first very slowly and then very quickly. <laughs> um, and so I think a similar kind of story, unfortunately, can apply to democracies, that these kind of that the kind of erosion of democracy does take place slowly. And, um, you know, so we need and I think in many ways the U.S. is experiencing this. And so to prevent the, the, the moment of rapid collapse, I think we need to work very hard. Right, because once you reach that point of, of rapid collapse, it's it's too late, right? Yeah, and so and and I think the way that this actually takes place is through this kind of spiraling effect, where both sides view each other as enemies, and neither side wants to compromise, and you kind of get into this death spiral where it's where it's really hard to break out of. And in many ways, I think all of us, including myself, have taken our own democracy for granted. And I've tended to, tended to think that you know p- politicians can act as reckless as they want, and our institutions are strong. Um, but I think that actually, you know, you look around the world, that's that's really not the case. And so we really, again, part of the purpose of writing the book is to alert people to the basic fragility of our institutions. And so you also say in the book that um, democracy is is grinding work, um, which kind of ties back to our whole theme of, of this podcast, uh, Democracy Works. So can you talk a little bit more about what, what that, that phrase means to you, grinding work? Yeah. So that's, yeah, no, that's that's good. This, this is a question nobody's asked me before. So, um, uh so there's this distinction that there's a great uh, German sociologist, Max Weber, has this distinction between the politics of ultimate ends and the politics of responsibility. And the politics of ultimate ends, uh, Weber says, you know, what, what are the, your goals? What's, what are your big visions in politics? And it's important to have big visions and big goals and high policy priorities. But politics is also just about behaving in responsible ways, democratic politics. And so we, in a way, it's a distinction between process and policy. You know, and so what we think is that often one has to make compromises in politics, uh, in process, in order to to you know achieve one's goals. And but what we think at the end of the day is that one has to remain committed to the process, and that one has to, you know, forge alliances with people that one may disagree with, on policy terms, in order to defend democratic institutions. And so one of the points that we make is that, you know, it's important for Democrats, for instance, who want to defend democratic institutions to reach out to people they may not normally think they uh, reach out to. So kind of, you know, I come from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's a you know solidly blue state. And when people think of their political allies, they think of the kind of usual suspects. But our point is that, you know, in order for democracy 
to, in order for Democrats, that is, you know, with a small d, Democrats who are who are who are patriots of democracy, uh, they need to reach out to people that may disagree with business, whether that's business leaders, uh, you know, um, evangelical Christians, again, groups that they may not normally think of as allies, but people who are committed to the democratic process. People need to kind of find strange bedfellows in a way to remain who are committed to the process of democracy, and that's hard work. It's frustrating work. Uh, it's slow-moving work, and so I guess that's why I call it grinding work. Right, right, yeah, and it seems like in our like instant gratification age, right, yes. more and more difficult to to achieve. Um, so your your book has been out now for for several months. It's been on the on the uh, bestseller list, and I'm curious if you've heard of what what feedback you've heard. Have you heard yeah. from any readers who like I read your book and I did this or I did that or taken action? Yeah, a, a, quite a bit of that. I mean, both in public. Uh, forums. So, you know, I've spoken in public libraries and next uh, month we're going to be speaking to the League of Women Voters. And so in public forum where citizens show up and it's and it's really been quite moving in a lot of ways. Citizens are extremely concerned. Um, and, you know, I think in many ways it's reaffirmed my confidence in American political institutions and in particular civic institutions. Uh, but also uh, letters. We've gotten emails, letters, you know, uh, typed, e- typed letters from people who don't obviously don't use email. Um, you know, saying that this is, you know, this book has changed how I think about politics. Um, and, and in some ways, I guess some of the more moving letters have come from teachers. I've often, we've gotten a lot of letters from high school and elementary school teachers saying, you know, what, what should we be doing in the classroom to change how people, how kids think about politics? And what do we do? You know, and people often will say, you know, how do we, in an era in which it's hard to even watch the news because of the kind of the stuff that gets covered in the news, but we want our children to be engaged in thinking about politics. You know, how do we square these two things? And so, you know, this this is, you know, made me think that they're really, you know, this is the book. I mean, the book has found this resonance, I think, to a large degree because people, citizens are concerned. And again, I guess this partly gives me confidence uh, that, that, you know, people aren't taking their democracy for granted, and, and I think people are sort of really interested in finding solutions. And so there's lots of new democratic activ- activism uh, across the United States. And so we found that very encouraging. Yeah. So um, you, yeah. you mentioned that you've uh, received um, uh, letters and emails from, from teachers asking how they breach these topics. So what do you say to them? What do you, yeah. What's your response? Well, it's, you know, I, I have to say I don't know. Um, you know, it's, these are really hard issues. Um, you know, I think one of the things in writing this book that I've become more and more acutely aware of, I mean, I've always been, I'm a political scientist and I've always been interested in the big institutions and institutional reforms and you sort of think you can engineer institutions to generate better political outcomes. But I've become more and more convinced that there's a, a, there's a set of norms connected to democracy and a, a, a culture of democracy. And so on the last page of the book, we have this quote from E.B. White where he, he was asked and then the... the 1940s. What is democracy? And he he describes the sense of um, freedom that one feels in the public library and in the voting booth. Um, and you know that that's that that's what I think what he's describing is a kind of cultural sense. Um, and you know that it's a it's a bit nostalgic because he's describing life you know in the 1940s. But in a way, I think what our what our jobs. And I'm a, I'm a teacher, so one of my jobs as an educator is to generate a sense of that uh, for students. Um, and I think in many ways, you know, one of the things, one one area that I've, I think there's some interesting work being done is in, in, in teaching children how to deal with fake news. Um, so this is not exactly right on your question, but, 
you know, so in the um, my my own father grew up in Maine in the 1940s, and he was telling me that in the 1940s, you know, in the in the midst of the beginning of the Cold War and after having fought fascism, there was this incredible effort to teach children how to detect propaganda. He still could remember from the fifth grade the kind of key hallmarks of propaganda, um, and you know that quickly kind of disappeared from the curriculum. Kind of civics curriculum, but I think in many ways, what you know, there's now lots of work being done, and people sort of trying to figure out how can we have our children in schools begin to develop the skills of active citizenry, and and I think in a way we have taken this for granted for too long, and I think you know people are developing curricula and trying to think about this, and I think that's a, that's like a promising area of work. Great. Um, so we are going to, to conclude here um, by asking you some of our Mood of the Nation uh-huh. questions. Okay. So um, the uh, McCourtney Institute runs the Mood of the Nation poll. Uh, it is a quarterly um, public opinion poll, but um, a little bit different from some of the other polls out there in that it is open-ended. Mm-hmm. So there are four questions that we always ask. I'm looking for your best tweetable responses uh-huh. here. Okay. So we'll, okay. the we'll, on, we'll, we'll start with pithy, and then you can, okay. you can expand there okay. if you did. So what about politics in America makes you angry? I think when people aren't, can't even engage in debate and hear each other. Mm-hmm. And then um, what, what, about, what about American politics makes you proud? Uh, citizens showing up to public libraries to discuss the future of democracy. And um, what makes you worry? levels of distrust of again again it's very similar to the first point levels of distrust among among citizens of uh, across the political aisle right. and and finally we'll end on end on a positive note here what gives you hope i think the 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 anti-gun movement in the high schools in florida i mean this is this is an incredible movement again where i think young people are really understand things that adults don't and um you know, that's it's been really moving and I think that it, this has the potential to ha- be a, have a transformative effect all right great well we'll leave it there Daniel thank you so much yeah, for joining us you. today thank you all right well kudos to Jenna that and to Daniel that was a terrific interview yes Daniel this is clearly his not his first rodeo. not his first rodeo and when you have a, <laughs> a book on the New York Times bestseller list you can you can expect that you're gonna get some uh, experience with doing interviews <laughs> Yeah, really interesting interview. Uh, you know, terrific book. So mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not at all surprised. I was really struck by something he was talking about there when he was saying that words matter. Right, which is what a point that we made in the beginning. Right, that that uh, uh, you know, this distinction between words and actions is not as bright as a lot of Republicans would like it to, to think it is. Yeah. So just to pick up a little bit on what he was talking about with the media, because, you know, you and I have talked about this before and we see, uh, you know, we see the, the a free oppositional press as critical. Right. To it's a, a democracy. It's sine qua non, really. And they and they do, too. And, uh, you know, one thing he was talking about a little bit was uh, whether or not the president's threats against the media have really made you know, whether they've made a big difference or not. And he points out that they've, you know, that polls seem to show a large distrust of uh, of the media. We've picked this up, too, right. on our Mood of the Nation poll. And, and interestingly, I think we've picked it up in a way that shows really the impact of the Trump campaign. And that is to say, when we first started polling in 2015, we, we, we didn't then and we don't now ask about the media. We just say, what are you angry about right. in politics, as Daniel was mm-hmm. asked? And uh, Republicans never mentioned the media Early on, they were angry at Obama and Hillary Clinton and lots of other things. But once Trump really started to talk about it, about fake news and attacking the media. And- yeah, and we have numbers of people who trust the media or respect the media. It, it, 
unheard of lows. You know, we're recording this as we're kind of entering into the primary season, and we have had candidates in multiple places uh, not answer questions or deny stories based on the idea of the fake media. It, and, it, it is, and, and not to mention the fact that other tin horn dictators around the world are picking up on this notion of fake news as a way of just kind of insulating themselves right. from well, criticism. If you want, that's what we're seeing in some of these other campaigns right now. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about that news story from a local media source about something that I did or because it's just fake. And I, I don't have to take it seriously. Right. I can just dismiss it out of hand. And the groundwork's been laid for Right. That. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why there's a First Amendment, because the, the founders understood yeah. that you couldn't sustain a democracy without it. Period, paragraph, right? I mean, it's, it's the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. And so just to give a taste of really how interesting and timely this book is, you know, we've been talking mostly about this issue of the media, which is just one small part of uh, what they talk about as the uh, indicators of authoritarian behavior. Uh, what I think they do so nicely in that book is to walk through each of these. Right. You know, so I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, it's not it's really not that funny when we talk about locking up Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's not that funny is that democracies do not, you know, delegitimize their opponents by by calling them criminals. And authoritarians do. And authoritarians do. And, you know, it's one thing that, you know, often Donald Trump seems to uh, like to align himself with authoritarian leaders. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with he tends to see himself in very strong sorts of mm -hmm, terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Donald Trump does not talks about strength a lot. He does not talk about democracy. Yeah. And, and the one thing about this book, I mean, you know, both you and I um, can um, wax emotional on some of these issues. But the thing about this book is it's measured. It's it's grounded in in history and in a, you know, formidable knowledge of how this has happened and the terms by which they evaluate um, America right now and especially the Trump presidency are um, objective, right? These are not like, and here's how we're going to trash Trump. That is not what's going on here. These, these uh, categories, these um, litmus tests that they set up are... Um, uh, are meant to describe how any democracy moves into right. authoritarianism. So uh, we have a uh, this book, a, a really good uh, sense of what we should be looking for and and how what we should understand to be important and how we move forward. And uh, and that's kind of our job too uh, in this podcast. So we're going to be looking at. Um, ways that people are talking about with respect to civic education and some other issues coming forward that are uh, de particularly designed to um, address this question of how do we sustain and rebuild norms going forward. Yeah, looking forward to coming back to that in a future podcast. So everybody tune in. I mean, I, I think uh, we've talked quite a bit about these kids down in Florida and some of what we can learn. Right, right. From and, them. And, and obviously Daniel and finds Daniel, that very hopeful yeah, as well. He, and, uh, you know, if we were in the, if the mood of the nation poll were in the field this week, I think we'd hear that answer a lot. I think you're right. Nick. Yeah, so go to uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. 
like our podcast like because our podcast. that helps it spread and more. We're on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think about this. What other things you'd like us to talk about? Yeah, and some podcasts bring their dogs in here, but we're not going to do that. Well, not yet. Well, I mean, we're going to tease that for at least a year before we actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks for listening.